Our study today is found in Bereshis chapter 47, Genesis chapter 47, verse 28, reading through to the end of the chapter, and we have done the reading already. I'd like to launch right into the study because there's so, so much to cover. And our purpose as a fresh reminder is that we want to see through the sages' eyes this year. We want to see what did the ancient rabbis believe when they looked at passages like this. We're going to find a lot more in a passage today like uh, the one we're studying than we would say from last week's because this one has a lot of sayings that Jacob will say. He's got a lot to say about the future, prophetically speaking. And of course, whenever anything is introduced prophetically into the sages' ideas, into their minds, you know what that means. It means that there is a great deal of speculation about what that prophecy will, will, will mean, what it's going to do, uh, to what is it referring. And so, um, uh, very important to realize that when we look at the sages' works, today you're going to find tons more written about him. That said, we need to launch into our study. I'd like to, in a sense, divide up um, our study into two portions. Well, let's make it three, shall we? The first section is going to be fairly short. The second section will be a bit longer, and perhaps the third will be uh, about the same as the second. But the reason I'm dividing it up this way is because we begin to see that Jacob, in the waning hours or days of his life, he really divides up what he has to say into two main areas. The first is going to be toward the two sons of Joseph, that are going to be adopted sons of Jacob. First thing we need to focus upon is the fact that these are sons of an Egyptian woman and they were not, of course, born to anyone within the family, so to speak. In other words, the mother who gave them birth is indeed a woman of Egypt, someone who even came out of an idolatrous background, but is in fact now known by her new status. She is the wife of Yosef. Now her status is no longer, oh, Yosef married the daughter of the priest of On. Now she will be known henceforth as the wife of the one who saved the whole world from starvation. And indeed, that is going to be how she'll be referred in the life and times that Yosef lived. When you consider all the people who would know her, her circle, you might say, of acquaintances in and around the palace, they wouldn't have called her the daughter of the priest of On anymore. They would have said, oh, Yosef's wife. They would have accorded her a special honor. And as such, we realize that the children she bears, Yosef, are going to equally be um, uh, seen in a very different way by the people of Egypt but they wouldn't necessarily be seen yet by Yosef's brothers in the same way that they would view each other. For example, if Shimon is going to look at Ruvain and see him a certain way as being the son of their father, and then they look at the sons of Yosef, they would know that there was a relationship there, but there would not have been afford- they would not have accorded them the same sort of relational respect or the way they interacted together. Are we clear so far? So it is important then, because today when we think of the 12 tribes, and we think of them, we we don't see Ephraim and Manasseh as the grandsons of Jacob. We see them as the sons of Jacob. We see them as brothers to the others. And indeed, that is how it was intended by the first act of Yaakov in this passage. He does call 
after 17 years, mind you, this is important, 17 years go by after Yaakov arrives in Egypt, during which these young children would have grown up. Now, let me just talk for a brief moment about the age. If you simply do a little bit of math, you come up with some interesting age statistics. We know, for example, that Joseph was away from his father for a certain number of years. We also know that uh, it was after so many years of the famine that had begun when he first encounters his brothers. We also know that it was after a certain... If we do the math, we begin to understand that when his brothers showed up to get grain, the majority that his sons could be in terms of age, don't forget, uh, Menashe was the firstborn of Yosef. He could have been only nine years old. Now, this is a difficult thing because the sages have attributed to Menashe all kinds of activities. For example, they say that the servant who chased after the brothers to get the cup back, that was Menashe. They say that he was the one who was in charge of Yosef's household. Well, it would have been a very mature nine-year-old to have done that if, indeed, he was the maximum age. He may have been less. But regardless of that, let's say that he was nine when he first encounters his brothers. It would have been shortly thereafter that Yaakov came to Egypt, and Yaakov has been in Egypt now 20, excuse me, 17 years, which would have made a maximum age, if our math is still holding up, of 26 years of age for Manasha, when indeed he goes to adopt these two boys as his own. How final is this? Is it, a, is it a, an honorific title? Is it something which is meant simply to um, create an illusion? Indeed, I said, none of us today consider two of the tribes of Israel to be the grandsons of Jacob. We consider them to be the sons. And that is exactly what God instituted through Jacob's netter, through his words. As Jacob puts them upon his aged and bony knees, of course I'm assuming, maybe he had quite good knees, I don't know. The point is, he puts them on his knees and he says to Joseph, the children you may have hereafter will be considered your children, but these will be considered my children, they're mine. So in other words, Joseph, I'd like you to meet your two brothers, Ephraim and Manasseh. This does not mean that the relationship would have changed as far as God was concerned as to who these progeny physically had come from. But they were to be considered as the brothers of Yosef, equal footing, and may I dare say, equal inheritance. Equal inheritance. These, of course, we have likened in our past studies to those who were born among the nations. In the diaspora, you might say, as Joseph was cast out and he was among the diaspora, he was away from his family, away from the land of Canaan, these could be likened unto non-Jewish people who, in fact, have been born of a foreign woman, perhaps someone who's come out of idolatry themselves even. The bottom line, when they are adopted in or grafted in, they are considered to be, guess what, joint heirs. Joint heirs and equal with, in fact, the, the prophet um, Ezekiel, in the 47th chapter of Ezekiel, says that those who would come to sojourn among us, who would, who would be living among us, who would give birth to children among us, they were to be considered as those who were born in the land. That's the kind of equality which is being given to them. It does not change their physical lineage. Do you understand that? It is not rewriting history so that it reflects some other kind of parentage. 
But as far as the, the way they relate now to the rest of Israel, it is to be seen as fully adopted sons, sons of inheritance. What a wonderful picture presented for us. Therefore, it is important we look and see a little bit about this adoption process. And we do know that uh, as a young men, that J- Joseph would have been the ones to have raised them up to this point. It would have been Joseph's influence upon them, and it would have been Joseph's outlook upon them that would have been shared with them, and they would have grown. It's interesting that Rabbi Shaul does mention in the ninth chapter of his letter to the synagogue in Rome that those who are Israelis, uh, there are those who to whom belongs the adoption as sons. And I think this is important when you consider the letter to whom he's, he's writing these to, to people who are of the synagogue in Rome. Now, of course, we make all kinds of assumptions when we do the blessings on Erev Shabbos. On Erev Shabbos, dads who have a, a service in their home where, where their sons are present, what do we do? We say... We take our sons, we lay our hands upon them, we say, May God make you as he did Ephraim and Manasseh. And we say, that's exactly what it is here. In fact, that's what the, the scripture says in chapter 48, verse 20, I believe it is, where it says here, All of Israel, yeah, verse 20, So he blessed them that day, saying, By you shall Israel bless, saying, May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. Now, what is the typical understanding of that? The typical understanding of make God make you like is in terms of fruitfulness. You'll find that is exactly the way most commentators treat this. May you be as fruitful as Ephraim and Nasha. But what if there's a whole lot more involved than just fruitfulness there? Maybe there's a whole lot more to this. One commentator says, we want our children not to be regarded as foreigners to Israel, but fellow citizens in the saying that we do, that may God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. Is it possible for native-born Jewish people, those who are native-born of Israel, to worry or be concerned that their children might be considered as foreigners? Yes. Both because assimilation is always a danger into the culture in which we have been thrust, but also because it is possible to commit activities against the Torah for which a person would lose their relationship. And this, in fact, is mentioned in Romans 11, as well as all through the Torah. Through the Torah, you will see examples of where God says things like, um, this person doing such and such will be cut off from their people. And we, in past years, have examined that concept. Some of the cutting off is done by Hashem himself. And, in fact, he even takes life. Other parts of the cutting off are done through... uh, a base dean. And some is done by the person themselves. But that is the danger. So when you look at Romans 11, what do we see? Romans 11 says to the non-Jewish person who's been grafted in, here, this is a relationship. Now, they do say some branches were broken off and you have been grafted in. And then, of course, he goes on to say, we need to be careful, we need to be in fear, lest we are broken off as well. Or he's speaking to non-Jews, he said, lest you, they might be broken off as well. Because God is certainly able to graft back in. And so that is both uh, a warning, but also a great encouragement about how God... And by the way, that idea of Romans 11 is not speaking about salvation. I want to make that very, very clear. Because 
if it was speaking about salvation, think this through for a minute, it would mean that some people were born saved. And no one is born saved. You understand? No, it is referring specifically to the way the Torah reflects how a community is and how it works and the inner functions of how it works. But let's go on from there. In addition to praying or hoping that our own children would not be regarded as foreigners but fellow citizens like Ephraim and Manasseh, what else might it mean when we put our hands upon our sons and say, may God make you as he did, Ephraim and Manasseh? Well, it might mean that they receive full rights as sons, that they be adopted. It might be that they would receive full inheritance with. It means they might be grafted into and there's all kinds of the person who's writing this particular list is himself not Jewish, and so this list is something he's reflecting from his own personal perspective, and I think it's a very good one. And last, in the same way that Ephraim and Manasseh were raised to the level of brothers with Yosef, we also pray that our children be raised to uh, an association as level or equal to, to being brothers with the rest of Israel, and indeed if we look at Yosef as the, as the messianic picture, then yeah, we're asking for our brothers to be reckoned with Messiah, our children to be reckoned with Messiah. All right, we're going to jump now into the second portion. First one didn't go too, too badly, did it? Second portion is really we're dealing now with the final blessing which Yaakov was going to bestow upon his children. And I know, as some of you read this, you had to be looking at the language going, hmm, I wonder if this could be made any less clear than it is here. Because indeed, there's a lot of stuff in here that causes us to say, this is either very ancient language, which does not necessarily have a very good English translation to it, or perhaps there's more to this than meets the eye initially, and can we find out what that is? That's the question here. 49 verse 1, Yaakov called for his sons and said, Assemble yourselves, and I will tell you what will befall you in the end of days. The Aharit Hayamim. Yom is, of course, day. Yamim is days, right? That's the plural. But the acharit is, is um, that same word. Remember achar we were talking about with regard to Avraham? It said Avraham looked behind him and saw in the thicket a lamb caught by his horns. And when it said that he looked behind him, it uses the word achar. Remember that? And we also said the sages refer to the end of days as a statement there. And that's why some translations will say he looked behind him or it'll say he looked to a time that was not in front of him yet. Okay? So, the acharit or acharet hayamim, which is the end of days, the days which are yet to come. And indeed, we begin to say that really from what Yaakov pronounces here, we could say any time afterwards or behind the words of Yaakov would be these things which could befall his sons. Okay? Of course, I mentioned earlier, the sages are very, very careful to examine each thing and then to look at the history of our people from the time the thing was spoken until the sages themselves were reckoning these things and to say, has there been any fulfillment of this and perhaps it has yet to be fulfilled and so... It will also not come as a surprise to you that they're trying to see messianic references in almost everything in this passage. Which is kind of neat for us because it doesn't give us any shortage of material. 
just gives us a shortage of time. That's the problem. All right. We are going to begin. <clears throat> really, not we're not we're not going to begin with Ruvain. And we're not going to begin. Let's begin with Judah, shall we? Let's go to verse 8, shall we? Judah, Yehuda, you, your brothers shall acknowledge your hand will be at your enemy's nape. Your father's sons will prostrate themselves to you. Obviously, if we're going to start with Judah, it's because Judah would be the one through whom Mashiach will come. And, of course, the sages are going to examine this very, very carefully. Okay? Now, what does it mean to have your hand on the nape or the neck or the back of the neck of your enemies? Verse 8. Hmm. Let me read to you what Rashi has to say this. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. This refers to King David. Now, Rashi says this refers to King David. Why? Well, it's interesting. Because King David, in the book of Shemuel, the second book of Shemuel, second Samuel, he, in giving praise to God and thanking God, uses an interesting phrase. He says, You have also made my enemies turn the backs of their neck to me. Now that, you might say, was David speaking perhaps even prophetically about the coming Messiah. And he certainly well may have been. But you have to understand, David was a Torah scholar. Remember that? He loved the Torah. If you doubt that, I got a couple chapters in the Psalms you might want to read. 19 and 119, two great passages which he extols the virtues and wonders of the Torah. And he talks about it in breakdown form. He talks about this being this and this being that. It's very, very beautiful. I highly recommend that you read this and that you read it on a regular basis so that you don't lose sight of the treasure which we, which we possess. But there's another aspect to this. Before David could ascend the throne of Israel, according to the Torah, of which he was no stranger and of which he was very much in, in compliance with, he had to write himself two copies anyway. So he would have known these words and he would have known that it was his own forefather, Judah, to whom this was prophesied, saying that your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. I wonder what it would have been like to be David, realizing that he was the king that was first going to fulfill this particular prophecy. That he would be the one that this prophecy first spoke of, because it would be only under King David that the reality of this passage first became apparent and was true throughout the nation of Israel. Wow. Then David would have uttered these words, perhaps soberly, perhaps with joy. I don't know. But I would love to have seen his face and to have heard the inflection in his voice. I would love to have seen that. Why? Because what would it have done except to say, this is true. What you have spoken here is coming to pass. And I'm the first person to whom this refers in the line of Judah and one wonders what David would have thought about that which would come later he certainly knew that Messiah was coming through Judah and of course he had been promised by Hashem that his kingdom would not be cut off therefore he would have seen himself as a forerunner and a forebearer of the Messiah that's tremendous okay Having looked at the similarity in the language between David's confession in the 22nd chapter of 2 Samuel, verse 41, by the way, and Rashi 
interpreting this passage as being uh, speaking specifically of David because of his reference. Okay, I just want to make sure we understand that. But I want to talk a little bit more about that. It says here also in verse four, in verse nine, excuse me, verse eight of chapter forty-nine. It says, "Your brothers will prostrate themselves to you. They will bow down before you." Is another way of saying it. Hmm. Your father's sons. If this was something you were familiar with, and this phrase was something that you were looking for specifically, you might find something very similar before this in the Torah. Because before this, it's interesting. There was another passage where it was stated, may your mother's sons bow down before you. And this, of course, was spoken to Jacob by Isaac. Isaac says to Jacob, may your mother's sons bow down before you. Now Jacob is saying to Judah, may your father's sons bow down to you. What is it referring to? Well, most scholars are pretty much universal in the sense that uh, when Isaac says this to Jacob, there wasn't any other wives involved. Isaac only had one wife, and it would be Rebekah. And so Isaac could say this to, to Jacob. Of course, Rebekah's sons, that is him, uh, his brother, all of the sons which follows are considered her sons, and they would, of course, bow down to uh, Jacob rather than Esau. And here, though we have Jacob with really four women responsible for the, the tribes. Okay? You've got uh, Rachel and Leah, but you all have, also have Bilhan and Zilpah. And these, of course, are the four mothers from whom all of these have come. And therefore, to include them all, he says, may the sons, uh, your father's sons, shall bow down to you. Very important. I want to go backwards to the, really the beginning of the verse now. Judah, you, your brothers, shall acknowledge. What does that mean? They'll acknowledge you. Well, literally, the word here is yada. You say, ah, I know this word, yada. You've talked about yada before. Not this one. Well, I have, but not maybe as much as I've talked about the other yada. You see, there is such a thing in English called a homonym. And there's the same thing in Hebrew. Uh, what's a homonym? Well, a homonym is using a word that sounds exactly the same, but it has a completely different spelling, perhaps, or a different meaning, perhaps. For example, the word night. Night is falling, right? But if you were invading a medieval castle and somebody fell off the wall, you might also say, night is falling. <laughs> right? But it's spelled completely differently. It's got a K in front of it, and it has a different meaning. You're, you're getting the point there? The word night sounds the same, has a different meaning, and we use the word nay the same way. A horse makes a sound, which we say is nay. Or if you are wishing to say no to a person, you may say nay. You may say nay. So there's all kinds. Uh, uh, we say sleigh. Sleigh is something you can either ride in as a one-horse open, or it may be that you are killing someone, and that is called slaying them. And again, these are words that sound the same, but they have a different meaning. And so is there is with the word yada. This particular yada is not the yada which is intimate knowledge of. But rather, this word yada is the word from which we get the word Yehuda, praise. And that I did mention before we were discussing Yehuda's birth as a word which meant praise. But I wanted to just kind of, again, create the differentiation between the two words. Now, what do they have in common? They do have the, hey, the basic root word of yad is in common. Hand, arm. 
Okay, so I want to make sure we understand that that is the root word of those both words, but they are different expanded definitions, all right? You, you, you could then relate this this way, because the word yada is used here. Judah, Yehuda, your brothers shall praise you. I know that the way it says here that they shall acknowledge you, but it's more than an acknowledgement. It is an acknowledgement which is bursting forth through lips of praise. That is the essence of what it means to have them praise. It is the way we, we, use, we use the same root to get giving thanks. It is also the same root we use to confess something with our mouths. Therefore, if Yehuda, if we who are novices are saying, hey, we'd like to see something messianic in this passage, if this is what we were doing, we would say, ah, the brothers will have to confess about Yehuda. We've already said Yehuda has, has already been a messianic picture for us. Right? And indeed, he's been the advocate, the leader. He's been the one making defense on behalf of his brethren. He's even been the one who has volunteered to be the one in place of his brethren, in place of his brethren who might be punished. He has volunteered to take the punishment upon himself, though he was innocent. That, you could say, is clearly a messianic picture. So if that's true, what about Yehuda here? I think Yehuda, your brothers shall confess you or praise you. Both of those, whatever way we want to look at it, is an interesting thing. We do know this. That Rabbi Shaul, speaking of Mashiach, he says, in every, in every tongue will confess that Yeshua, the Messiah, is Lord. That's in Philippians 2 and verse 11. Huh. Yaakov's prophecy then regarding Yehuda may be in fact a forebearer of, uh, or rather prophecy regarding Messiah who comes from Yehuda. Your brothers shall confess you. They shall acknowledge you. They, they shall proclaim with their mouths praise over you. I think this is very, very important to recognize. All right. We're going to continue on. And we're going to look at verse 9. Continues with Yehuda. You notice this? Continuing with verse 9, it says, A lion cub is Yehuda. From the prey, my son, you elevated yourself. He crouches, lies down like a lion, like an awesome lion. Who dares rouse him? Hmm. You know, it's interesting because in Numbers chapter 23, speaking of Yehuda, it says, The lion will not lie down until it devours the prey and drinks the blood of the slain. Numbers 23, 24, the lion. In Revelation 5, it says, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome. There is an interesting thing you need to see here. Because Hebrew in this particular passage is a very fa fascinating look. If you were looking only at English, you might actually go elsewhere in the Torah and find this phrase is repeated verbatim. Verbatim. Numbers chapter 24, verse 9, you'll find that an unlikely person is going to mimic these words almost. And that is Bilam. Balaam the prophet. The pagan prophet, the one who came and eventually was responsible for so much death and destruction in Israel in spite of the fact that he only pronounced good over Israel. He then arranged for Israel's downfall using a sneaky backdoor method of bringing in immorality through unscrupulous means. But here's Bilam. 
in Numbers chapter 24, specifically speaking of Israel, he crouches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who dares rouse him? You know what? I look here, and I look at the translation which is in front of me here, in chapter 49, verse uh, of 9 of Genesis. It says, he crouches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who dares rouse him up? It's exactly the same in English, but it is not in Hebrew. And that's because there are two different types of lying down spoken of in this passage. Well, let's take a look at the two different words for lying down. I think they're going to be quite revealing to us. The first word, which is the one in Genesis 49.9, is revats. He crouches, he revats as a lion and as a lion who dares rouse him up. And the word in Numbers chapter 24 is um, uh, shakav. He crouches, he shakavs as a lion and as a lion who dares rouse him. It isn't that there is a mistake here, and it isn't that we have someone trying to pervert a prophecy which was given earlier. It's not as if Bilam comes along and seeks to change the words which God allowed Yaakov to speak in prophecy regarding his son. But instead we see something else. In fact, the sages, looking at this in the Midrash, my goodness, what have they discerned from it? This is where it gets fun, beloved. You thought it was fun before? Now it really gets fun. We're going to say that the word shakav, which is the one that Bilam speaks about, is to lie down to rest. It is to lie down to rest. However, the one mentioned here in chapter 49, verse 9, ravatz means to lie, actually to lie down with all muscles ready in order to pounce. Therefore, the hunkering down image that you see is for different reasons. The movement, you might say, if you look at a lion and you see him doing this, you might say, oh, he must be tired or he's resting. Another time when he does this, you might look at his face. It depends on just how lazily he's looking around or if his eyes are fixed on something as he's lying down right in front of it. You ever see a cat? Do you ever see a cat get into that position where he's hunkered down to the ground? Maybe the tail twitching is the only movement you'll see. But his eyes are ever piercing and watchful upon the thing it is going after. That is the idea behind Ravatz, the passage in question today in our Parsha. So he crouches, he lies down, that is, coiled to spring, lying down. Ravatz. And as a lion who dares rouse him up. You ever get in the way of a cat that's going after something? Hmm. Imagine a lion now, which is not just a bigger cat. It has a very different nature, but some of the same characteristics. Uh, but anyway, let's go back to the other idea. Let me read to you how the Midrash teaches us regarding the two different terms in these two different passages. And what the sages have done is said, okay, one of these prophecies speaks about an age, and the other prophecy speaks about a different age, but speaks of the same individual. This is getting fun. Let's, like, let's take a look and see what the Midrash Rabbah says in 98 verse 7. When you look at the era from Peretz to David. Now remember, who's Peretz? The son of Judah through Tamar. Remember how that all happened. We discussed this not too long ago. So from the time of Peretz to the time of David, the lion, who yet his identity is unknown, 
at this point in our study today. The lion crouches, but he crouches resting. Okay? Then it goes on to say, but from David to Zedekiah, Zedekiah, it says that he crouches, he couches, he crouches down, ravats, that is, he is crouching to spring into action. And then from Zedekiah to Mashiach, it says, he crouches and he rests. And then it says, in this world, now the language has suddenly changed in the Midrash, because it's been saying from this time to this time to this time to this time, these things will be the case. And now it's not. It's saying in this world, listen to this, he crouches and he rests. Then it says, but in the messianic age following this world, he crouches in order to pounce. And then it says, after he defeats all his enemies, he will then crouch to rest. Now, who is the lion? Well, the sages, no surprise to you and to me, think that the lion is referring to the Messiah himself. So listen carefully now as I redefine the periods that they're talking about. Okay? We can say that the lion, which is the monarchy of David, which is really that thing which is picturing Messiah and his glory. Remember, David is considered the golden age of Israel's history. But then David's son, Shlomo HaMelech Solomon, who's considered the son of David, is called the son of David, is, is a time when there's no more war, it's peace. So you could say he's the, he's the son of David, he's the king or prince of peace. He's, it's, during his reign, there's prosperity like never any other time in history. Uh, for Israel. It's during his reign that the wealth of the world pours into Israel. It's during his reign that people from all over the world come to hear the words of wisdom which this king is giving them. Oh, you talk about a messianic picture. So the Davidic and Solomonic periods combine together and you see, in a sense, the, the war being fought at the beginning of the messianic age, right? And then following the wars being fought, then you see the, diff the different mantle put upon the same messianic figure, Messiah. And as seen in the two different individuals of David and his son, Shlomo Hamelech. But anyway, so let me remind us as we go. It says here, from Peretz to David, he rests. I'm just going to use that one word, rests or, or is ready to pounce, okay? So that we hear it a little bit more easily. So from Peretz to David, he rests. That is, the monarchy would not be that evident. Although Peretz is, is decreed that it's going to be from him, the prophecy was from Paris, his messianic line would come. You don't really see it manifested until the time of David. So you could say, okay, that period of time, resting. Got it? Then from David to Zedekiah, Zedekiah, is in fact a time where there's a ability to pounce. It's there, it's visible, it's ready to pounce, okay? So they would say that the monarchy, or that time which pictures another era, is in fact, the messianic era is not it's, it's, it's there. And of course, we said David and his son and all the kings which followed that, which were installed by God, were answered by God. God gave them victory in their wars until such time as idolatry began to overtake them. You could say that that whole time frame when the monarchy of David was very, very visible, that's the crouching, ready to spring kind of lying down, okay? And then the third one they say is from Zedekiah to Mashiach. 
There's resting going on. Zedekiah, don't forget, was the last visible king of Judah. Captivity came. Babylonian captivity, right? And what do they say? They say, until from Zedekiah to Mashiach, till Messiah comes. Now, you and I have an understanding or an opinion as to who Mashiach is. They don't yet. But I want us to assume, with our understanding being correct, I want us to look at these words and see how they fit. You'll find they are hand in glove. Okay? It really is something. So it says here, from Zedekiah to Mashiach, there is again resting. The monarchy is not that visible. Notice the language at that moment changed. It says, in this world. Notice that in this world follows the time of Mashiach in the sage's opinion. And it goes again and says, in this world there's going to be a snoozing or arresting kind of the monarchy is there, but it's not visible. Again, it's like it's in a sleeping mode. Now, notice how it went from the beginning. Resting, pouncing, resting, resting. It's not going back and forth. Resting, pouncing, resting, resting. Then it says, in the world that we live in, he is shakav, he is resting. But, then it says the Messianic age. Now, did you hear what they just said? They said, until the time of Mashiach, this will be the case. Then in this world, this will be the case. And then in the Messianic age. They have, in, in a sense, created another time frame in there. So, what have we got? It says, in the Messianic age, he will... Ravatz. That is, be pouncing until his enemies are subdued, at which time then he will crouch and lie down, shakav, to rest. So this is the thing that I'm trying to point out to you, and I don't know how well I'm doing here, but it is interesting. Um, let me just summarize it this way. From Paris to Yehuda, the monarchy remained concealed like a sleeping lion. From David to Zedekiah, a Judean king sat upon the throne like a wakeful lion. Uh, from the days of the Babylonian exile until the advent of Mashiach, the monarchy was again concealed and in Judah like a sleeping lion. With the advent of Mashiach, it will be revealed like a pouncing lion. And after Mashiach defeats his enemies, then the world will be at peace and he will rest again upon his throne like a sleeping lion. Okay? Pretty interesting. Let's go back now again to verse 9. A lion cub is Yehuda, from the prey, my son, you elevated yourself. From the prey, my son, you have gone up or elevated yourself. So your, some translations refer to saying gone up. It's interesting because the Hebrew here is very different. Literally, it isn't prey. The word is tearing. Tearing. And in fact, Bereshi Sirbah, the Midrash, says... It says, this really means from the tearing, my son, you have ascended. You have ascended from the tearing. Now, the Midrash says, this is Joseph it's referring to, even though it's speaking to Judah. It's referring to Joseph, even though it says to Judah. Now, why would the Midrash make such a bold statement? Perhaps because it is a Midrash, after all. It is parable-like information that we are to derive things from. But literally... We have been studying Joseph from the perspective that I can agree with them. 
The perspective that we've been studying Joseph from is that he is an image of the Messiah. He is a foretelling of Messiah. He's the image, the picture presented to us. And boy, have we seen such richness this year in terms of that picture from the eyes of the sages. From their perspective alone this year. We have been examining this and man has it been good. And if we're going to say that the sages are saying, this is Joseph, the torn son, he was torn from his father, he was torn and then he ascended. The sages are seeing something, but yet the text of the Bible says that this is being pronounced to Judah. So how would it be possible for it to be spoken to Judah, but also, not or, not either or, but and, and refer in a Midrashic way to Joseph? Because indeed, there would come a son of Judah one day who would go through almost an identical set of circumstances that Joseph went through. And therefore, the allusion to Joseph in the Midrash from this passage, which specifically says this to Judah, is not a contradiction at all. But it is indeed speaking of both images. The image of Joseph and what he had to endure, torn from his father, torn from his brothers. And yet what happened? He ascended from that. I think it's important to realize that when Messiah was being whipped with the Roman whips, the cat of nine tails, as you may read someday of the description of what they looked like, how the leather was tied and how embedded within the segments of the whip were pieces of metal, pottery, and bone. In order to, lacer to, to, to lacerate the flesh and to, to rip it open, Mashiach was torn. Oh, was he torn. So torn was he that he was unrecognizable. Front and back, face and arms would have received this whip. A horrible thing. And indeed, from the tearing, my son, you have ascended. May I suggest an understanding that is not necessarily in the English here, but from the tearing of my son, or from the tearing which my son endures, you have ascended. Speaking to Judah, again, this messianic prophecy. You have ascended from the tearing. Verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Yehuda, nor a scholar from among his descendants until Shiloh arrives, and his will be an assemblage of nations. The first section, let's take it. The scepter shall not depart from Yehuda. Uh, what do we see? There is a word here you need to understand. The word is Shevet. Now, we know that the word scepter and the word staff are interchanged throughout the text. In fact, scepter, staff, and rod and sword, interestingly enough, all are linked together in some ways. I'm not suggesting that they're all the same word, but they are linked together by meaning and by interactive usage by God as he chooses to use the phraseology throughout the word of what will be accomplished. So when he speaks of the scepter, the word is shevet. And sometimes the word shevet is seen as a great comfort to us. Because indeed, 
God does refer to the Shevet of the shepherd as that which comforts the sheep. But it also is used by God to mean that there are people, there are nations, there are events which will be struck with this Shevet. So it becomes both a disciplinary tool and one which comforts. I have to say that if I was going to look at a disciplinary tool as a comfort, it might be most of a comfort when I see uh, the enemy of Israel being hit with this tool. That would comfort me. But I have to say that there is another aspect to comfort. I'm amazed at how often when God disciplines us, how often he does so in such a way that he leaves the door wide open for us to run into his arms. When I feel most the the discipline of God in my life, it is a strange phenomenon that I have also felt at the same time greatly loved. It's a weird thing, I can tell you. But there are times when things go on in your life and you know they are for discipline's sake and you feel loved. I don't know if anyone else has that experience, but it's not one that I'm wishing for people to have, but if you have had the experience, then you know how precious it can be. And it is very precious. So, remember that the Shevet, the scepter, which is also known as a staff and sometimes is used as a rod, is also one which is both corrective and both one that comforts and indeed is used throughout the text in different ways. We'll come to the idea of of how it's related to a sword in just a moment. The word mate is a word meaning tribe, but it also means staff. And indeed, the word shavet also means staff and also means tribe. So in, in a sense, you could say here's a word, two different words in Hebrew, and they have all meanings intact. All the things it can mean in one sense are meant by the other word as well. There's no deviation at all. Hmm. Anyway, let me read to you what the sages have to say. In Psalm 110, verse 2, it says, The Lord will stretch forth, forth your strong scepter or your staff from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. And so... The sages, looking at this in the Midrash Rabbah 85.9, for example, they say um, that this is alluding to Messiah King, even though it is spoken as the staff of Judah. Remember where this was first used, the Shevet. We talked about Shevet, in case you might remember this. It was all those weeks ago, what, two or three where we were referring to the staff of Judah, which was used as an identifier. And it was that Shevet we spoke of then. And it was that which they referred to as the staff of Messiah, alluding to his person. Again, in the Midrash, it makes this connection. In Targum Yonatan, it specifically speaks of the Shevet of Judah, described in Genesis 49.10 with Messiah. Here's what it says in the Midrash. And in the Targums, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. This refers to the throne of kingship, as it is written in Psalm 45, 6. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. When will that happen? When the Messiah comes. That's the Midrash. 99, 8. Okay? In the Targum, 
targeting Meonatan, it says, Kings and rulers shall not cease from those of the house of Judah as a way of translating this scepter issue. Kings and rulers will not cease from those of the house of Yehuda. Okay? The scepter shall not depart from Yehuda. In a sense, if you look at Psalm chapter 2, it refers to Messiah saying, You shall break them with a rod, a shavet of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Verse 9. Hmm. In the book of Revelation, in chapter 12, it first specifically says that the male child is going to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Remember we've been studying chapter 12 a little bit more in, in weeks past? Revelation 12. The male child will rule all the nations with a rod of iron. In Psalm 89, 32, Hashem declares of the wicked, Then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. God says he's going to punish the wicked with his rod. Hmm. When we look at the Shevet and how many times it's used in the Bible for disciplinary correction, it's amazing how often. Mostly you'll find that Proverbs, wise, wise, Shlomo HaMelech says these things. He who withholds his rod hates his son. But he who loves him disciplines him diligently. 1324. 22.15 says, Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, but the Shevet, the rod of discipline, will remove it far from him. 23.14 says, You shall strike him with the Shevet, the rod, and rescue his soul from hell. And 29.15 says, The rod... The Shevet and reproof give wisdom. But a child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. Hmm. And yet it is the same word, Shevet, which is, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your Shevet and your staff, they comfort me. Hmm. You know, when God speaks of uh, himself as shepherd, and Israel as his flock of sheep. In Ezekiel, he says, he speaks saying, I will make you pass under the Shevet, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. A shepherd, when knowing his sheep, counts them, and they would pass under the rod, and he would in fact count them with the rod as they went through the opening. He was able to keep track and do a, a tally frequently. And though... Sheep require being led in and led out, being protected, far more than cattle who are free-ranging. It is important to realize that God does not refer to us as cows, as cattle. He refers to us as sheep who need absolutely every protection that can be afforded. The Shevet, the Rod. God says, I will make you pass under the Shevet, the rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. Ezekiel 20, verse 37. Hmm. Isaiah chapter 11 says something interesting, and here's where we begin to see the link between sword and rod. But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. The rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. 
Hmm. Remember that this is going to be repeated by Rabbi Shaul when he writes his second letter to the Thessalonian congregation, the synagogue there. In verse two, chapter 2, verse 8, he says, The one who is Torah-less will be revealed. The one who is contrary to the Torah will be revealed. Whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring an end, bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. Hmm. In Revelation 19.15, we see again, Mashiach is depicted as striking down the nations with a sharp sword from his mouth and ruling over them with a rod of iron. From his mouth comes a sharp sword. Here's the link. So that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule over them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. 19 verse 15. Hmm. Huh. What's the connection between all these things? Well, it becomes a lot more graphic as the time goes on and we begin to see that this rod and the sword are both proceeding from the mouth. Why is that important? Because the word is something we've discussed in previous weeks. And how it is that the word is simply an extension of the individual. It is not a different thing from the individual. It is, in fact, the individual in the way that we hear or understand that individual. How do I get an idea that's in here to come out so that you are able to have it go into your mind and understand it? Well, there's a variety of ways. We try to choose one that is the most time-effective, the one that is the most expedient, and that is for me to share ideas with you. So having said that, when you say, I speak words, the words I'm saying are not some entity different from me, but they are, in fact, me coming into your ears. You allow me into your ears, most of you. You may have heard the saying, you know, friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. It is, in fact, uh, uh, a metaphor for saying, I want to speak with you. Please open up your ears to what I may share and I have the privilege, as a rabbi, of having a time when people are open to hearing. And God sometimes takes that time and he, he extends it. Sometimes he brings it to a close. Sometimes I have people's ears and sometimes I don't. So wake up! Anyway... Let's go on here. The scepter shall not depart from Yehuda, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Even the words ruler's staff here is, is different from the scepter. In fact, it is mechokek, which is from the word chakak, which is inscribing. It is a root chakak, which means to inscribe. And you may recall that there were certain staffs which had inscribed upon them the name of the tribal leader. In fact, it was uh, in, in the Torah, as we continue reading, you'll find that the staffs brought before Moshe, all of them were inscribed. They were demonstrations of leadership. They were, they were the thing. It's, it's going back, in a sense, to chapter 38, where we see Yehuda giving his staff, which was a demonstration of who he was. It was a mark of identification that he gave to Tamar, which, of course, led the way to our parents being born, Mashiach. But anyway, the idea of Chakak is inscribing 
And you may say, Makak, that sounds interesting because it does have a root word with which you are already familiar. And that root word is shared by hook or statute, which is a written thing. A hook. A statute or an ordinance, we say. Hmm. Isaiah 32, 33, excuse me, verse 22 says, For Hashem is our judge, Hashem is our lawgiver, and it uses the same phrase, Mechokek, as in our passage of the, uh, that we're studying today, which refers specifically to the ruler's staff. It's the same word. He's the lawgiver. In other words, these are related ideas, and they're supposed to be. In Proverbs 8, 15, remember wisdom, the female character running around saying, please listen, please, please, I'm, I'm begging that you should listen to me. Wisdom declares, by me, kings reign, and rulers decree, or hakak, justice. They decree, or they write. They inscribe justice. Hmm. In the Greek Septuagint, the, ver- the, the Greek uh, Septuagint version of the Torah, it actually uses a different word here. It uses the prince's it uses the idea of prince's staff. In the Targum Yonatan, it actually t- takes the whole idea and says that he is a teacher of the Torah. The scepter shall not depart from Yehuda, nor a teacher of the Torah from between his feet, is the way the Targum renders this. And if you look at Mashiach, you're going to see all of these things are true. Because he is the demonstration of the legal authority of God. He is the lawgiver. He is the arbiter of the Torah. He is the second Moshe. He is the teacher of Torah. And he is the prince promised to arise from Yehuda. I mentioned the Greek Septuagint. It refers to the fact that there's potency in the line of Yehuda that produces royalty. So the way it's referred to in the Septuagint is a ruler shall not fail from Yehuda, nor a prince from his loins. Kings of Israel will ascend from Yehuda, no matter which way we look at it. The word Shiloh is the next thing we want to look at here in this, fact, in this particular uh, verse in verse 10, until Shiloh arrives. Of course, this is universally seen by both Jewish scholars and by evangelical Christian scholars as a means of describing the person of Messiah. You might say, what's the origin of this word? Hang on, God willing, we'll touch on it in just a moment. As a matter of fact, let's take a look at what the, the, the Talmud says here. In Basin Hedron 98b it says, What is Mashiach's name? What is his name? The school of Rabbi Shila said his name is Shiloh, as it is written. And it refers specifically to our passage today, until Shiloh comes. In the Targum, Onkelos describes the Shiloh passage as saying, Until the Messiah comes, for he is, his is the kingdom. Targum Yonatan says, Until the time of King Messiah, the youngest of Judah's sons. Hmm. In the Midrash, uh, Midrash Rabbah 98.8 in Bereshis, it says, Shiloh alludes to Messiah King. And Rashi, of course, follows the same line of thought, saying that Shiloh is a title for Mashiach. Now let's talk about its origins, shall we? The Midrash believes, and Rashi states this very clearly, that um, the word Shiloh is a contraction of the words she and lo, 
And again, this low is different than the low you may know. Low you may know means no or don't, right? But this particular case, it refers to him. So let me just say this. She means a gift of homage or paying tribute to. And lo means him. In other words, Rashi says, Psalm 76.11 makes it very clear. Let all who are around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared. This is Shiloh. Tribute to him. Okay? Sforno, the Torah commentator, he says that the word is actually related to Shalom. Meaning that Mashiach is going to be the one who ushers in a time of universal peace. Okay? Oh, there's a lot more too. I mean, the Septuagint says um, that... The, 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 that until Shiloh comes, things stored up for him, him is clearly referred to as Mashiach, things stored up for him as the right to the throne, the authority over the nations. I mean, there's so much we could go into on this, and we won't necessarily. One last person we want to look at here is a rabbi that I particularly love, and uh, one that I have quoted occasionally, but you necessarily didn't know that. Um, he's no longer alive, but he was alive not too many years ago. His name is Rabbi Rachmiel Friedland. Friedland, some would say, he was trained in yeshiva. And so therefore, you know, I have a particular aff affection for that. But he was trained in yeshiva, and he also was a believer in Messiah. Wrote a book that I use oftentimes. And the book was What the Rabbis Know About the Messiah. Okay? But uh, he says this, when he looks at Ezekiel's prophecy concerning the corruption of David's monarchy, he says this. Uh, well, let me first of all read you the prophecy. And you, O slain wicked one, the prince of Israel, whose day has come in the time of the punishment of the ends, thus says Hashem God, remove the turban and take off the crown. This will no longer be the same. Exalt that which is low and abase that which is high. A ruin, a ruin, a ruin. I will make it. This also will be no more until he comes, whose right it is, and I will give it to him. And Rabbi Friedland, he says, this is a messianic prophecy regarding Shiloh arriving. And Ezekiel spoke these things in the time of Daniel, which would have meant that from the time of Ezekiel and Daniel onward, it still was a future event. Okay? Here's what Friedland says. The prophet Ezekiel seems to refer to the scepter prophecy and to the term Shiloh in the Ezekiel passage. The Davidic king Zedekiah is abased and humbled and the Davidic dynasty is ruined until the rise of Messiah, whose right it is. Hmm. How many of you have read the word until in the Bible, different places? And that seems to bug you a little bit. This will not happen until such and such a time comes. And you think, oh, okay. Or this will not pass away until. How's that? Hmm. Well, it's interesting because in each case, we're talking about Hebrew readers, Hebrew thinkers, and Hebrew speakers, even if the words have been penned in different languages, Aramaic or Greek. And the word ad is the Hebrew word for until, but in fact, it's a very bad way of looking at the word ad. This word ad defies explanation unless we use a phrase. It is perhaps better to be understood, the word ad, that it means with a view to the time when, rather than at this moment, this thing will take place. Let me give you an example. In 110, Psalm 110, verse 1, 
we read these words. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Remember this? That might sound, if we're using our 21st century English-speaking minds to look at that, we might say, here he's going to be sitting at the right hand of God until such time as he makes his enemies his footstool, and then he no longer will be. Because after all, it says, until this time, you will do this. And it has led, tragically, many who are in evangelical circles to look at such a passage from an English perspective and say, that's because he gets up from the right hand of God, and then he comes to the earth, and then... Hang on a minute. There's a lot more to this. If we were to look at this from the perspective of the word odd and what it really means, let me just rephrase it this way. Sit at my right hand with a view to the time when I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Odd. So it does not mean that it marks the end of something, of David's king sitting at the right hand of God. But really, it is the goal which will eventually be arrived at as a result of this. You understand? You sit at my right hand. The result of which will be, I make your enemies your footstool, is another way of saying it. Okay, are we clear on this now? The word ad in, in Hebrew? All right. To him shall be the obedience of the peoples. The translation I read earlier said he sh- his will be an assemblage of the nations. Interesting. Midrash Rabbah says, To him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Messiah will come. And he will set on edge the teeth of the nations of the world, as it says in Micah 7.16. Nations will see and be ashamed of all their might. They'll put their hands on their mouth. Their ears will be deaf. Continuing with the Midrash, it says, Another interpretation of Genesis 49.10 says, that The verse refers to him to whom the nations of the world will flock, as it says in Isaiah 11.10. Then in that day the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal or an ensign for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. From the Midrash, 98.8, that is, of course, quoting Genesis 49, verse 10, which we were reading this morning. Hmm. They both apply to Messiah, no matter which way we're looking at it. We could get into the Messiah's donkey, Tying his foal and vine to the vine, the donkey's colt to the choice vine. We could look at the... Uh, um, by the way, I must tell you that the, the sages of old look at that. They say that when it says he ties his... You know, let's, let's deal with it. Let's just, let's just do it quickly here. We as Messianic believers who believe in Yeshua as the Messiah might say this refers to the time when he would ride on the foal of a donkey as it's prophesied in the, in the prophet Zechariah. And many people who are not part of the Messianic idea or looking at the same version of Messiah we are would say to us, no, that's your slant on it. You're trying to make this. You need to be aware that you can point them right back to the Midrash itself and tell them the Midrash makes the same connection we have just now. It's not just us coming up with this. Let me read to you what the Midrash says here. And by the way, what is the passage in question? Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And now here is the Midrash on that passage. Speaking actually about our passage this morning, the idea of the, uh, the, uh, the donkey here. He ties his donkey's colt to the choice vine, alludes to him of whom it is written in Zechariah 9.9. Humble and mounted upon a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the Midrash says, Messiah is going to be the one 
who will ride upon the foal of a donkey. And it's connecting the passage we read this morning, speaking of Judah and the Messiah, spoken of in Zechariah 9.9. And they themselves are saying it. The sages of old are saying Zechariah 9.9 is speaking of Messiah. So it's not just us making this assertion that uh, uh, he is who we think he is, okay? He washes his garments in wine, his blood, his robes in the blood of grapes. Well, there's a couple ways of looking at this. One is the abundance issue. Remember we talked about how in the Messianic age there's to be an abundance of wine to such a degree that it will be almost like water. And remember what the sages of old said. They said, Messiah will be like Moses. Why do they say that? Because in Deuteronomy it says he'll be like unto Moses. They say, how will he be like Moses? Well, in many, many ways, among which are this one. Moses came during a time of judgment upon Egypt, the sages said. He came when it was necessary to render judgment upon Egypt by turning water into blood. They said in a time of Messiah, it'll be a different era. It'll be a time when Messiah will be able to and will indeed turn water into wine. The abundance was the key. In the Messianic era, there was to be no shortage of that which brings joy. The idea of the fruit of the vine is that which demonstrates joy in Jewish communities. We know this. When we give Kiddush every time, it is creating the fruit of the vine. That's what we're whole point of thanking God for it. Why? Because he is, in fact, behind all of our joy. But what's important? They say that Mashiach will have so much abundance of wine, and if it ever should even think to run short, Mashiach will, in fact, change water into wine. This, of course, is greatly telling when it comes to the very first miracle. It is in the book of Yochanan, chapter 2, that you read about this. There's a place known as Cana. There's a wedding going on there. And what happens when they run short of wine? His mother comes to him. Now, has she come to him on the basis of any kind of track record? Does she come to him and say, hey, you've done all these wonderful things? No, this is the first time he's ever about to do anything supernatural. She's never seen it before, yet she comes to him and she says they run out of wine. Why would she do that? He's a guest. Some of you were at the wedding last weekend. Last beginning of the week, I should say. And uh, you were there. Now, if I was, if, if, if anybody who was in charge of making sure things were going on, if anybody there who was looking after the supply uh, was running short, would it have been right for me to run up to you and say, hey, they're running out of this? You'd have looked at me and said, and your point is, what's that got to do with me? I'm a guest here, right? And you would think, logically speaking, if Yeshua is a guest at a wedding and they run out of wine, nobody's going to go to him. But his mother did. Because his mother had a firm expectation that indeed this was the time when her son would reign. That he would, in fact, introduce prosperity to the world to such a degree that this would be the perfect opportunity. And his answer to her is quite telling. He said, my time has not yet come. Yet he goes again, he goes ahead to provide wine for people as a token, as it were. Perhaps a first fruits token, you might say, of that which was to come. My hour has not yet come. However, it is interesting. When you look at chapter 2, and you're looking at the verse 11, Yochanan, who's describing this, says that this was the beginning of his signs for turning water into wine. And that's the immediate thing we might go to, but I would like to suggest there's another issue here. Wine is both symbolic of joy, but it's also symbolic of blood. And if we're going to say that there's possibility this is alluding to the common usage of wine, 
If wine is so popular, it is so abundant that you actually wind up washing your clothes in it because it's as popular and as abundant as water is. Laundry water, as one commentator says. There's possibly another way of looking at this. Of course, we know that Yeshua appears in Revelation 19 as one who has, has had his robes dipped in blood. It specifically says his robes have been dipped in blood. Hmm. Remember that when Yosef was first being carted off to Egypt and his brothers were coming to his father with a fabricated tale as to how that all happened? What did they do? It says they dipped his robes in blood to show their father. Huh. In Isaiah chapter 63, we ref- we, it refers to Messiah coming forth from Edom. It says, with apparel red and garments like the one who treads in the vine press. In the Targum Yonatan, it specifically goes on to say this regarding the imagery of Isaiah 63. How beautiful is the King Messiah who is to arise from among those of the house of Yehudah. He girds his loins and comes down, arranging battle lines against his enemies and slaying kings together with their rulers. And there is no king or ruler who can withstand him. He makes the mountains red with the blood of the slain. His garments are rolled in blood. He is like a presser of grapes. That's the Targum Yonatan on this particular verse, verse 11 of in Genesis. Hmm. And of course, I mentioned already from Revelation 19, verse 13, he will have his robes dipped in blood. And it's interesting also that in Revelation chapter 7, it refers to those who are declared pure by God who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Hmm. When you hear the term the blood of grapes, as the Bible does use, it is a, an idiom. It's a colloquialism referring to wine, the blood of grapes. And I find it interesting that both can be alluded to in a particular phrase. Yeshua taking the cup as he sat at Seder with his disciples, his last Pesach Seder said to them, this fruit of the vine here represents my blood. Okay? Verse 12, his eyes are dull from wine, his teeth white from milk. You say, mine doesn't say dull from, mine says dark from. I understand. Again, let's take a look at the the Midrash. His eyes are dull from wine, they say. From this you will learn that wine will be abundant in his territory and his teeth white from milk for the sake of the Torah. As it says in Isaiah 1.18, though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are like crimson, they will be like wool. So they refer in the Midrash to the fact that abundance is why his eyes are dark like wine or dull like wine. And teeth white as snow, or white as milk rather, would be an allusion to the fact that milk is plentiful as well. In the Targum it says this, How beautiful are the eyes of the King Messiah, like pure wine. For they have not seen the uncovering of nakedness, or the shedding of innocent blood. His teeth are whiter than milk, because he has not eaten that which has been robbed or taken by force. His mountains and his press will be red from wine, and his hills white from the harvest and from the flocks. See all of the different parallel and linking together of wine and milk all through the different rabbinic writings. That's just Yehuda. We could go into the blessings over Dan. And Dan is followed very rapidly by the idea that 
Yaakov says, Oh, I wait for your Yeshua. I await your Yeshua, your salvation, O Hashem. The sages believe that when he's giving a prophecy about Dan, he really believes at that moment that Dan will be giving birth to Samson, and he believes Samson might be a shadow or a type or even perhaps a pre-Messiah Messiah. Yet he also then says, the sages say, he then saw Samson fall into difficulty and into moral temptation and failed. And therefore he begins to immediately speak of Dan as a serpent and, and, uh, and then immediately follows up with, oh, I wait for your salvation, your Yeshua, speaking of Messiah. Have you ever wondered why we have such a difficult time with history? agreeing with the Bible, at least the history that people know. I thought about postponing this, but I really would like to go through it. I think it's a very, very good thing to show you. Our history today is based upon a couple of different things. One of the first modern historians, you might say, in the last 2,000 years was a fellow named Eusebius. And if you have done any study of the 4th century of the Common Era, might see Eusebius as as I do, as a real thorn in the Jews' side. Why? Because Eusebius began from a perspective of anti-Torah bias. He was a self-confessed Christian, non-Jew, who hated the concept of the Torah. Hated it. Therefore, he did what was called the first real serious history of the church from the time of three centuries earlier, to his time, in which he rewrote the history of the church to reflect that the people who were in the book of Acts and so on, and all the people who were immediately after the book of Acts, must have been dead set against the Torah. They hated it. They wanted to get rid of it. They were there to squelch it. They, in a sense, he's backward juxtaposing his own hatred against the Torah onto a group of people who, in fact, were supposedly as hateful to it as he was, and all the people, he says, of the first and second and third centuries of the common era were clearly against it. But he didn't stop there because he had a fixation and that fixation was to, in a sense, see if he couldn't prove that biblical history was in fact true. So he had this thing going on. He starts off from an anti-Torah perspective. But he also wants to prove the Bible to be true in its historical happenings and, of course, much of the historical happenings of the Bible are found, guess where? in the Torah, right? And so if you're looking at it from that perspective, how do you go about doing this? How do you walk on this tightrope? How do you do this balancing act? Both to try to prove the Torah true and to defame it at the same time. Difficult. Eusebius, Origen, two names that have stood out in infamy with, with regard to who we are as a people. So let me sum it up this way. Eusebius went back in history and said, we would like to prove by science that the archaeology will demonstrate conclusively that the Bible is true. Now, if that's true, we should find in archaeology demonstrations of things that you might see in the Bible. For example, the Great Flood. And then you might find that history, obviously, if, if Joseph was the guy he was supposed to be, you would find Egyptian history would be filled with stories of Joseph, right? And he began to put together what he called an ancient chronology of events. He basically went from 
he took the work of a post-Ptolemaic historian. Um, let me just refer to it this way. He takes a, an ancient, uh, a man named Menethos. Menethos, um, he takes his writings and says, you know what? He puts Israeli history and Egyptian history side by side, but he begins them. Egypt's history, he says, is concurrent with the time of Adam. In other words, the first pharaoh of Egypt would be around the same time as Adam. In other words, one of Adam's children, while Adam was still alive, would have been the first Egyptian pharaoh. And he lines up those two events, and then from then on, he tries to marry together different events. The difficulty is, nothing worked. Nothing fit. The problem is, Eusebius was so intent on this, and he published his findings so vastly, so, so widely, that scholars began using his chronology of events as if they must be fact. And indeed, even to this very day, even in Egypt itself, you have historians all basing their work on a chronology which Eusebius established. And in the 1800s, when hieroglyphics were first being able to be read, you may have heard of Rosetta Stone and the ability for us to begin unraveling the Egyptian language. And you would think that when this was discovered, you'd go into all the hieroglyphs and you'd find out that, guess what? All of the Bible would be validated because you would think Egypt would have records upon record upon record of all these events. And guess what? Based upon Eusebius' chronology, nothing worked. And you know what happened eventually? The 1800s led to the 1900s. And people began to develop different disciplines of archaeology and, and geology. And the problem is, different disciplines never came together and tried to share their own information. You, for example, would find that the people in the Mesopotamian area have evidence of a flood. Archaeologically speaking, there's evidence of a flood. Geologically speaking, there's evidence of a flood. And then you find something in another part of the world where there's evidence of a flood. But because this particular discipline in in geographic location A, puts the flood date at this age, and over here in the Mesopotamian area, you have a different discipline putting this particular flood at a different age, and those ages happen to be a thousand years apart, you now have people who are saying, oh yeah, there's evidence of flood everywhere in the world, you understand, but they're all from different ages. So each of these were localized little floods. There was no such thing as a great worldwide flood. Why? Because they're all basing it on different chronologies using different disciplines in science. And then along came, in the 1950s or so, along came a fellow named Emanuel Velikovsky. And Emanuel Velikovsky said, um, time out. What if Eusebius was wrong? where he puts his first chronology? What if he matches up the wrong two different time periods or dates? What if Israeli history and Egyptian history weren't starting off here, but rather what if we did one of these, where we actually join them together at some events which are common in their both of their histories? Is it possible we could then begin to see a record in Egyptian history of the fact that Israeli history, as written in the Bible, is true? But by the 1950s, no one was interested anymore. Because science had purchased wholesale the lie. They had bought the lie that Eusebius' uh, 
chronology was fact. And Eusebius's chronology, don't forget, was first introduced to try to prove the Bible true, yet Eusebius's own chronology was used to disprove the Bible because he began from a basis of anti-Torah. Emmanuel Velikovsky, noted historian, and of course, more and more people are starting to look at his work seriously and saying, hey, you may have heard the name Emmanuel Velikovsky. Hope you have. You'll be hearing more of it. Because I truly believe the man is accurate. How can I say this? Where do I get my... Um, where do I begin... Here's what he did. He had a proposal. He said, what if we take, instead of the first Egyptian king known as Menes lining up with Adam's time frame, what if we have him lining up with Abraham's time frame? What if we just move all these things which we assume are ancient history? See, here's the problem. Egyptian history does have lists of flood. It does give us details of a great famine in the land. Yeah, it does. It does even tell us about who solved it and how. But the problem is, using Eusebius' chronology, these things were a thousand years before the time of Joseph. But what if, instead of Menes, the first Egyptian king, being lined up with Adam, we have Menes, the first Egyptian king, being lined up with Abraham's time frame? What about all these other events that happened subsequent to it? Do you know what you find? You find Genesis in Egyptian history are exactly the same from that moment onward. And all we had to do was move the starting point. That's why I happen to believe Velikovsky, because it isn't just in one anecdote we find agreement, but we find Egyptian history now begins to line up with biblical history, and they are precisely the same. Many of you have seen the movie The Mummy. How many of you saw that movie, The Mummy? Some of you don't want to raise your hands. <laughs> Who is the big bad guy in The Mummy? Do you remember? I mean, you've got you to think through for a minute now. The big bad guy in The Mummy was this ancient wizard-like creature named Imhotep. Remember him? And Imhotep, you may recall, was a servant of the king of the time. And Imhotep rebelled in the movie. In the movie, Imhotep rebelled against the king's rulership and he did stuff that was horrible and, and he used sorcery and everything else. Well, it's not a surprise to me that Imhotep is the bad guy in modern versions of ancient Egyptian history. It's no surprise to me you ever wonder why if Imhotep had all these great powers in Egyptian lore? Why he even stood for being second in command of Pharaoh? Let me suggest an idea to you, beloved. Imhotep is a title. It is given not as a name, but it is given for one who has done such. All right. I would like to suggest to you that Imhotep of Egypt is Joseph of the Bible. Let me read to you some, some of the things that Egyptian history tells us about Imhotep. First of all, Imhotep was second in command under Pharaoh de Djoser. De Djoser was not his given name either, by the way. De Djoser means the wise. This king of Egypt was referred to as the wise, not even in his own time. He was referred to as the wise centuries later. Why? Because he had done something in his own time which was so wonderful that it saved all of Egypt. And what did he do? He exalted Imhotep. Imhotep is seen as the greatest of all Egyptian sages 
he is seen as the grand vizier underneath Pharaoh, who would later be known as Dejozer. All right, so Imhotep was second in command under Pharaoh Dejozer. Imhotep, according to Egyptian literature, <laughs> which is what you call a piece of rock with carvings in it, Imhotep lived to be 110 years of age. Imhotep was considered a great builder and an architect. Imhotep was an interpreter of dreams. Imhotep saw that there was going to be seven years of famine ahead. Imhotep stored up corn during seven years of plenty. Imhotep was the first person to institute a one-fifth income tax for Pharaoh. So far, every single, single thing I've said is something the Bible says Joseph did. You know that? Every single thing so far. Imhotep married into a family and he married the daughter of a priest of On, according to Egyptian inscriptions. Imhotep had a knowledge of astronomy. Some would say astrology. Imhotep was supposedly a poet and an educated medical writer. He was legendary. Imhotep is a title meaning one who, who comes in peace. And Imhotep was one of twelve siblings. All of these things we say, wow. When you consider all that transpired, Imhotep never sought to overthrow the Pharaoh he served, yet he is seen as equal to Pharaoh in that day. You would think such a person might have at least one little drawing or carving or something made of him, right? The Bible referring to Joseph says he was a man who was beautiful of appearance, which is why Potiphar's wife had such a hard time with him. Kind of interesting, we have this, this little image here we can look at. They look like a nice Jewish boy to you? <laughs> but I mean, there are many, many things. And if we line up the way Emmanuel Velikovsky lines up his chronology of history, ancient history, things all begin to match up. So I want to just point that out. I think it's, um, it's worthy of note that rather than archaeology disproving the Bible, it all depends on where you start. And once you start and you line things back up the way they should have been lined up, suddenly you have a verification. You would think with all this verification that uh, people would start flocking back to the Bible. The problem is the damage was done. The damage was done prior to this. It was done in such a way that people felt that here is one who is a, a theologian, a historical theologian, you might say, who did his own disproving of the Bible. Remember, he started off with a bias against the Torah. And so it's not a surprise to me. That's why it's no surprise to me when you think about modern movies that are made somehow to sort of go back and sort of revive a little bit of Egyptian legend and, and bring it to the screen so people can be thrilled with all the special effects and stuff, that the real big bad guy in that story is Imhotep. So now you're all going to run out and get that movie. <laughs> Just to think, oh man, what'd they do to this guy anyway? 
I just remember, when you rewrite history in your own image, like Eusebius did, it's going to pervert history. Just be aware of that. Avinu Malkeinu, our Father and King, thank you for our time together. Thank you for that last little bit we were able to um, to learn and to uh, to see if maybe we couldn't see someone in history fitting in the description and verifying through archaeology a new chronology for us, understanding that your word is not to be doubted. It can be validated. It can be demonstrated to be true that we who really wish can begin to understand your workings through history. Please cause us, Lord God, to be more like Mashiach in every way. May the words we speak, may that which we say, be only things he would say from his mouth. We pray this all, Bashem, Yeshua, Mashiach. Thank mm-hmm. you.